Luke chapter 7. This morning we're going to be considering a, a centurion, a Roman centurion, who besought or implored or pleaded with the Lord Jesus Christ to heal his servant. The original Greek word that's translated servant is doulos, which means slave. So what that means is the centurion was pleading with Jesus to heal his slave. Tells you a lot about the compassion of the man. And also the centurion's faith was highly commended by Jesus, who at the end of the passage that we're going to consider, said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Jesus commended the faith of that Roman centurion. Let's look at Romans, uh, Romans, Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my booth. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant or my slave shall be healed. For I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Amen. Looking at verse 1 again. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Verse 1 has reference to Jesus finishing his Sermon on the Mount, which is partly recorded in the previous chapter, in chapter 6. And also, it can be found in more detail in Matthew's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 through to 7. However, now we see the Lord entering into Capernaum, which was a fishing town located on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret. Uh, 
It would seem that Jesus had preached his sermon on a nearby, nearby mountain. On one occasion in Capernaum, Jesus stood in a crowded room and a paralysed man was lowered through the roof on a stretcher. You may remember that, we looked at it not so long ago. First of all, Jesus dealt with the man's most pressing need. Paralysed from head to toe. What do you think his most pressing need was? It wasn't his physical affliction. Jesus dealt with his sin. Jesus said to him, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. When Jesus said that, there were scribes in the house. Scribes, they were the experts in the law. And they objected to what Jesus said. They reasoned in their hearts. In other words, they thought quietly within themselves. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? So, within themselves, they were accusing Jesus, the Son of God, of blasphemy. They they thought within themselves, who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man have power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. I suppose anyone can pretend to have authority to forgive sins, but it's not anyone that can say to someone who's paralysed, arise, take up your mat and go to your house. People saw that. The scribes saw it and everyone in the house saw it. They saw the power of Jesus in action. He spoke. And it was done. There were various other miracles that Jesus performed in Capernaum that also showed him to be the promised Messiah, the Christ. But for all that, he had some very solemn and sobering words to say to the people of various towns, including Capernaum. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through to 15, Jesus said, <clears throat> Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. 
Those are the words that he had for Capernaum. The people of Capernaum, where he had said to a man who was paralysed, take up your mat and go to thy house. Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. You'd have to wonder why it was that even though the people of Capernaum witnessed, or at the very least heard about the healing power of Jesus and his authority to forgive sins, I say that because obviously not the, you didn't get the whole of Capernaum in that house where the paralysed man was lowered through the roof. But you can bet your boots that word travelled fast. And that people will have at the very least heard about Jesus and what he did, even if they didn't see it with their own eyes and hear him with their own ears. Jesus nevertheless told them that they shall be thrust down to hell. Well, the people, they had rebellious and unbelieving hearts despite all that they saw and all that they heard. It's the same now. It's the same now. There's nothing different. But I'm not talking about Capernaum. That place is now nothing more than a tourist spot for those Christians who want to go to Israel and visit the old relics. That's all it's good for now. I'm talking about our little island home where there is a willful disobedience to the gospel of Christ, despite the incarnation of the Son of God, his life, his sinlessly perfect obedience, his sacrificial death, his resurrection and his exaltation, all being recorded and and, um, preserved in the scriptures. Everyone on this island has easy access to a Bible and all those details are recorded in the Bible. And also, over the past 2,000 years, there's been that faithful witness of ministers of the gospel proclaiming the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are more interested in other things. They're more interested in their scratch cards. They're more more interested in winning the lottery. They're more interested in how their football team has done. And so on and so on. But all those things pale into insignificance compared to being reconciled with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the last days. I'm not going to stand here and tell you when Jesus is coming again. I'll leave that to others who imagine that they know. I don't know, but I do know from the scriptures that we are in the last days. And when Jesus comes again, he will come in judgment. Now is the day to receive him as repentant sinners 
if you haven't already done so. Never mind anything else. Nothing else really matters. What really matters is crying up to heaven for mercy and knowing Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour. Believing that he paid the penalty for your sins at the cross. That's what really matters. As a result of people's rejection of the truth, the wrath of God abides on them. And again, I'm talking about our little island home. It really is a case of woe unto you who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death and everlasting punishment in hellfire. I think that what one of the commentators has said about America is equally applicable to this land. He said, we often hear people say that if they saw a miracle or actually heard Jesus in person, they would believe. Not so. These towns heard Jesus and saw his miracles, but they hardened themselves against him. They would not submit to him as king. To hear Jesus' messengers is to hear him. To reject them is to reject him. To reject the message that I bring to you is to reject Jesus. Jesus predicts Capernaum's demise. They thought highly of themselves, exalted to heaven. But Jesus thought otherwise, and his word stands. The city of Capernaum is now an an uninhabited heap of ruins. The same that happened there could easily happen to America. And I might add, could easily happen to our island. Our nation has had great light, but even many of those who profess Christ show by their disobedient and self-centred lives that they are not subject to his lordship. It is a terrible thing for those with such knowledge to reject the gospel. Let's have a look at verse 2 in Luke chapter 7. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. As I've already said, a centurion was an officer in the Roman army. And as an aside piece of information, if that centurion was actually based in Capernaum, which seems likely, he would have been under the immediate command of King Herod, who had authority in that region under the Roman Emperor. So the centurion was a man with authority by virtue of the fact he was an army officer in the occupation army. He had a lot of authority, but also he was a man under authority, under authority of King Herod, ultimately under the authority of the Roman Emperor. People came to Jesus pleading with him to heal them, their sons and their daughters. But in this passage, 
we have a Roman centurion. He'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard about Jesus. We see that in the next verse, in verse 3. And he besought the Lord Jesus Christ. He pleaded with him to heal his slave who was dear to him. That really is remarkable, truly commendable, when you consider that apparently, in the Roman world, slaves were the lowest class of society. And even freed criminals had more rights. Slaves had no rights at all. In fact, they had no legal status, no individuality. They were just property. They were just possessions of their masters. They could not create relations or families, nor could they own any property. To all intents and purposes, they were merely the property of their owners, just like any other piece of property, like a building, a chair or a vase. The only difference with the slave is that they could speak. It goes without saying that Christian masters were to show kindness to their slaves. For example, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, Masters, give unto your slaves that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Obviously, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your master if you're a Christian. You belong to him. And how wonderful that is to belong to Jesus. Giving to slaves that which is just and equal is in keeping with the golden rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You wouldn't expect anything else from Christian masters and Christians generally to look after their slaves, to have consideration for them. People who have heavenly masters have a heavenly master themselves. You wouldn't expect anything else from them. Having been delivered from everlasting destruction when Jesus redeemed them, when he set them free with his own blood. However, that was not the case case amongst pagans, against, uh, amongst Romans, who were more likely to simply dehumanise slaves. Pretty much the same as we dehumanise unborn babies and then we kill them. Under the banner of women's health care, women's reproductive health care. The Roman centurion was a notable exception. Let's have a look at verse 3. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. In Matthew's account of events, there's no mention of the centurion sending the Jewish elders to Jesus. In fact, it's written in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion 
beseeching him. Inevitably, there are those who see a contradiction. However, a perfectly simple and reasonable explanation is that the elders came to Jesus as fellow Jews and they spoke to Jesus on behalf of the Gentile centurion. Verses 4 and 5. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him, instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. We saw in verse 3 that the Jewish elders beseech Jesus to come and heal the Roman centurion slave. But in verse 4, the elders spoke not so much as they were directed by the centurion, but as they saw fit. And, as we can see there, they gave a glowing report about the centurion to Jesus. According to what they said, the centurion clearly loved the Jewish people. He had a heart for them, inasmuch as he built them a place of worship. I'd say that was very generous, and I can't imagine it was particularly cheap to build them a place of worship. Verses 6 through to 8. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter unto my roof. Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. The centurion's friends, we've we've moved on now from the, the elders of the Jews to the centurion's friends, they, come to, they came to meet Jesus and to speak to him. And they were speaking on behalf of the centurion. The fact that they went out to meet Jesus when he was near the house suggests that a message had been relayed back to the centurion's house that he was indeed coming. We've already considered the elders' glowing report about the centurion And now we can learn something very important about the centurion, from the centurion, not from his own mouth, but from the mouths of his friends who came to meet Jesus. We learn that he considered himself not worthy to come himself. So although he had all that love and generosity towards the Jewish nation, building them a place of worship, he nevertheless considered himself not worthy to come to Jesus. That's why he sent the Jewish elders in the first place, because he wasn't worthy. Also, he considered himself not worthy that Jesus should come into his home, even though in his house there was lying his his, um, servant, his slave, who was dying. And in verse 8, the centurion's reasoning was in a sense from the lesser to the greater. 
him being the lesser and Jesus being the greater. Figuring that he, if he is a lesser official, could authoritatively give orders that were promptly obeyed, certainly Jesus, the possessor of far greater authority, was able not only to do the same, but also much more besides, such as heal his dying slave. All things considered, the centurion, even though he was a man of substance, he obviously had plenty of money, and he was a man with authority, he was a humble man. The question arises, how did the centurion ever imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ would heal his dying slave who was in his home if he considered himself unworthy that Jesus should enter his home? How was Jesus supposed to heal that slave? He clearly, the centurion servant, a uh, centurion rather, believed that Jesus was able to heal at a distance and that his word was sufficient. He had enough faith to believe that Jesus didn't need to enter into his house to heal his slave. An example of how powerful the words of Jesus are can be found in John's Gospel, chapter 11, where Jesus commanded a dead man to rise by saying, Lazarus, come forth. With those few words, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, we're told that his body began to stink. In other words, he was going through decomposition. Even so, he rose from the dead. Let's have a look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marvelled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The Bible records only two occasions when the Lord Jesus Christ commended faith. One was the centurion in today's passage and the other was another Gentile, a Canaanite woman who pleaded with Jesus to cast out an evil spirit that had possessed her daughter. We read that earlier, didn't we, in Matthew chapter 15. Like the centurion, the Canaanite woman was also very humble. For example, she fell at the feet of Jesus. It's very different, isn't it, from people who stubbornly and proudly continue to wave their fists towards heaven. To wave their fists towards Jesus. People who refuse to repent and come to Jesus. Also, that Canaanite woman cried unto Jesus, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. That's interesting. Although there's nothing in that passage concerning the Canaanite woman to lead any of us to conclude that she was trusting in Jesus as her saviour from sin, she certainly knew enough from the scriptures to know that God had promised to send his Christ, who would be a descendant of King David. 
and who would heal the afflicted. And she, she rightly believed that, Je- that Jesus was the promised Christ, the one who God had promised to send into the world. And indeed, Jesus, when he came into the world, he performed various miracles, he healed people, and all of those things testified to him being the promised Christ, spoken of in the Old Testament prophecies. That Canaanite woman, she, at the very least, knew enough from the Jewish scriptures to know that Jesus was the promised Christ who would perform all those wonderful healings. And she looked to Jesus to heal her daughter and to cast out the evil spirit. Likewise, it's as well to appreciate that even though the centurion demonstrated a real faith in the healing power of Jesus, having heard about him, possibly having heard about how Jesus um, healed the man who was paralysed in that house. And he demonstrated a real faith by virtue of the fact that he sent Jewish elders to plead with him, to plead with Jesus to come and heal his dying slave. Even though the Lord said that he had great faith. The passage still does not allow us to assume that his great faith referred to a saving faith in Jesus. A faith whereby he believed that Jesus would very soon be sacrificially wounded and put to death for his transgressions, bearing his sins in his body at the cross. We don't know that to be the case. We're not told. In Acts chapter 10, there's another centurion and he is described as being a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. That's in Acts chapter 10. You might think when you read that, Well, he was a Christian, if if ever there was one. Let me read it again. A devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people, and prayed to God always. You might think that he must surely have been a Christian, but it's only later on, when the Apostle Peter came into his home, and preached to him, and to his household, about the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit fell upon that centurion and his family, and they were baptised. So, coming back to the centurion in today's passage, I don't know whether his great faith extended beyond trusting in the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ to trusting in Jesus as his saviour from sin and his Lord. But what I can say to you is that the heavenly physician Jesus, who healed that dying slave at a distance, is able to save sinners at a distance from heaven.
He is able and he is willing to heal hell-bound sinners. None but Jesus could heal that dying slave. Likewise, even the very best doctors and surgeons in the world are unable to heal people of the most deadly of all diseases, sin. As Bishop Ryle said, there is a foul soul disease which is ingrained into our very nature and cleaves to our bones and marrow with deadly force. That disease is the plague of sin. Like leprosy, it is a deep-seated disease infecting every part of our nature. Heart, will, conscience, understanding, memory and affections. Like leprosy, it makes us loathsome and abominable, unfit for the company of God and unmeet for the glory of heaven. Like leprosy, it is incurable by any earthly physician and is slowly but surely dragging us down to the second death. And worst of all, far worse than leprosy, it is a disease from which no mortal man is exempt. Finally, the centurion rightly considered himself not worthy to enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor to have Jesus come into his house. Yet Jesus, who is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, will in no wise cast out all who come to him as repentant sinners. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is eminently able to save to the uttermost all of you who trust in him, believing that he who knew no sin was made sin when he carried your sins in his own body at the cross. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.